All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. MGM once promoted this film as the greatest cast ever assembled. No, it wasn't an Avengers movie, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, or Ocean's Eleven, or Twelve, or Thirteen, or Eight. It was the Best Picture winner of 1931-32, though, Grand Hotel. The attraction of the celebrity in Hollywood was the biggest ploy to get audiences to see this film. Faces sell, and Hollywood continues to grow as the stars become marketing tools. Going to the cinema becomes more than just watching a story take place. The celebrity embodies the character and presents it to the audience in order to establish a connection. The celebrity is important for pop culture because they can represent fashion, cultural political views, and at times encompass a general feeling within these high-priced dramas. These representative feelings or characterizations are relatable to a general audience. The layered entertainment is a tool for the audience to engage intensely or minutely with the story. Melodramatic stories are perfect for general audiences because that particular story can connect at an emotional human level. The exaggerated moments and emotions in these films help celebrities because we are now identifying the entertainment with a face. That face now speaks for their character on screen, as well as the off-screen character that everyone gets to consume. This elevates the celebrity's status and then puts them into more films for us to consume. It's just the Hollywood circle of life. When done right, it can be an enjoyable watch that makes you grow fond of a film. So fond of a film that you awarded Best Picture, like Grand Hotel. And so where we begin this episode of Worthy, I want to pose this question to John. How are you shaped by a celebrity, and how does that impact your view of that person and the work they are a part of? Well, when I look to, like, one actor, and especially with my family growing up, I usually always think of, like, Tom Hanks. Okay. Um, I think with, like, the kind of era that he was in in the 80s and 90s where he was in such prominent films. It was like a big staple of my family to like enjoy a lot of his characters in his films. And it, it's really heavily reliant on comedy and mixed with drama and melodrama. And his character became like the iconic dad in our household. He kind of represented this like good American man, this kind of idol that we should kind of look up to. And that carried off screen as people really talked about him as such a great guy and beyond just being a great actor. So let me guess. Some of those movies were probably Toy Story, Forrest Gump. Uh, what's another one that came out when we were kids? Castaway was that another one? Or yeah, that was definitely a huge one for Castaway. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. It, it's actually kind of funny that you say that he like embodies like dad character because his like two Oscar movies, uh, Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. He is not a dad. Well, I guess he's a dad at the end of Forrest Gump. Spoilers alert, but <laughs> that's like not what the movie's about. Um, but yeah, I I definitely agree. Tom Hanks for me is definitely one of those guys. But for for me, though, a formative like celebrity is actually Natalie Portman because her Oscar movie, Black Swan, which is one of my favorite movies ever, came at a time where I was where I was like basically figuring out that I wanted to get into production at any kind of level. And so for me, like that was influential because I because she made me believe that I could do it and made it cool for me to want to be a part of the industry in in any way that I could be. So I think it's a, it is really unique how celebrities even though we may never know them as people we view them uh, through how we consume media social media how we see them in the news uh, on screen off screen no matter how we consume it they are such an influential parts of our lives and where that takes us though is to grand hotel and grand hotel was pretty much the first film to have major multiple i guess at least 
four or more big celebrities of the time in one film. And that became something huge for Hollywood executives to promote because they can now take all their actors and just push into the funnel of the, the studio system and say, here's a film for all of you to enjoy with this character and this guy and, and this actress and whoever you can think of. And that's where Grand Hotel is. And so we have to ask that question again, John, is Grand Hotel worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1931-32? So welcome back to Worthy. It's episode five. I'm Ben. I'm John. And we're going to be talking about this movie called Grand Hotel. It's a star-studded film by MGM. John, and some, just some initial thoughts from you about seeing some celebrities of the time all in action on the same screen. Yeah, I think that's the kind of big thing that jumps out to me in this movie is just the, the ensemble cast that we have. Really the first ensemble cast that we've really seen in these films. You know, we've had large number of casts in these uh, previous films like Simran uh, most recently, but it's not as star powered and it's not as uh, drawn up and all these different characters interacting. It's not directly focused on these huge big names until now with the Grand Hotel. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the story, and it's multiple, there's multiple storylines of it. So it's like the first one where it's not, it goes from character to character rather than just like a lot of characters that's through one uh, person's you know point of view. So it's pretty interesting uh, to see how that kind of story structure was first used in these early Hollywood days. Uh, so without further ado, let's talk about Grand Hotel. Grand Hotel. People coming going nothing ever happens dr Audernschlag, a disfigured veteran of world war one and a permanent resident of the grand hotel in berlin observes people coming going nothing ever happens after which a great deal transpires baron felix von geiern who squandered his fortune and supports himself as a card player and occasional jewel thief befriends otto kringling a dying accountant who has decided to spend his remaining days in the lap of luxury. Kringlin's former employer, industrialist, general director Praising, is at the hotel to close an important deal, and he hires stenographer Flemchen to assist him. She aspires to be an actress and shows Praising some magazine photos from which she posed nude, implying she is willing to offer her more than typing if he advances her career. Another guest is a Russian ballerina, Gruzinskaya, whose career is on the wane. When the Baron is in her room to steal her jewelry and she returns from the theater, he hides in her room and overhears as she talks to herself about wanting to end it all. He comes out of hiding and engages her in conversation, and Grusinkaya finds herself attracted to him. He spends the night with her. The following morning, the Baron returns Grusinkaya's jewels and she forgives his crime. She invites him to accompany her to Vienna, an offer he accepts. The Baron is desperate for money to pay his way out of the criminal group he has been working with. He and Kringling get a card game going. Kringling wins everything, then becomes intoxicated. When he drops his wallet, the Baron stashes it in his pocket, intending not only to keep the winnings, but the funds that will see Kringling through the last weeks of his life. However, moved by the sight of Kringling's despair, the Baron, who desperately needs the money but has become very fond of Kringling, pretends to have discovered the wallet and returns it to him. As part of a desperate merger plan, Pricing must travel to London and he asks Flemchen to accompany him. Later, when the two are in the room, which opens into his, Praising sees the shadow of Baron rifling through his belongings. He confronts the Baron. The two struggle, and Praising bludgeons the Baron with a telephone, killing him. Flumchen sees what happens and tells Kringlin 
who confronts Praising. He insists he acted in self-defense, but Kranglin summons the police and Praising is arrested. Grishankaya departs for the train station, expecting to find the Baron waiting for her there. Meanwhile, Kraling offers to take care of Flemchen, who suggests they seek a cure for his illness. As they leave the hotel, Dr. Odenschlag again observes, Grand Hotel. Always the same. People come. People go. Nothing ever happens. Grand Hotel starred Greta Garbo as Grushinkaya. John Barrymore as Baron Felix von Geigen. Joan Crawford as Flemchen. Wallace Beery as General Director Pracing. Lionel Barrymore as Otto Kringlin. Louis Stone as Dr. Odenschlag. Grand Hotel is an MGM production produced by Irving Thalberg. Directed by Edmund Golding. Written by William A. Drake, based on the play Grand Hotel by William A. Drake, and the novel Mention Him Hotel by Vicki Baum. Music by William Ext and Charles Maxwell. Cinematography by William H. Daniels. Edited by Blanche Sewell. So, John, where should we begin with the Nothing Ever Happens Grand Hotel? <laughs> Truly, I think nothing ever happens. Uh, just generally, I'll go off the top of my first impressions. I really dislike this movie. This is my least favorite movie, I think, so far that we've watched. I mean, you can take out the racist shit from Zimmerin. You can take out some of the really sexist stuff from Broadway Melody and and the iffy parts of just the overall production of Broadway Melody. I still was the most bored. I disliked the characters in this more than any other films we watched. And I was just really uh, disappointed by all these characters coming together because it just didn't really feel worth it to me in the end. What about you? I, I liked it. I, th I found it to be um, in the total of all the best picture winners to be pretty middle of the road. It doesn't do anything that's so offensive and it's bad in terms of its technical aspects, but it also doesn't do anything great with its story or its characters. So it's pretty steady for me. And I think I liked it more than you did, but I definitely can see your point about it. Just nothing really happens, which after kind of processing your take and then going back through my notes and going back to some key scenes, I was like, huh, not really much does happen in this film. Yeah. So let's just jump into that. I, yeah. I really, I've seen a lot of films. I don't want to be that person who's just like, <laughs> well, I've seen over a thousand movies, but I've seen right now my letterbox. I'll be that hipster is at 14, a little over 1400 films. I, and uh, yeah, I don't keep a running list, but we, I've probably seen almost the same. <laughs> yeah. Right. And my, it might be a little bit higher just on based on films I haven't logged or whatever, but I've seen a lot of movies and I've seen movies with no to light plots. And I just made like a, just a list of five different movies that we could kind of reference mm -hmm. all from kind of different eras. Um, so we have clerks before trilogy, easy rider, the Breakfast Club and Slacker are all films that I think have either light plots or little to no plot. And it's really just a story driven through characters. And those are actually all films that I love. Like I love Clerks for it's like insider look into this convenience store and it's supernaturalistic dialogue and the before trilogy talking about supernaturalistic dialogue and this beautiful romance. Easy Rider with its like fluent, amazing soundtrack and a super fluid story and these wacky characters. And this really, it's a really a ride that you take with these characters. And then Breakfast Club, we have this amazing ensemble. It's like surmises all these amazing actors together, but still has a purpose and a point to overall, you know, talk about their, their specific time in their childhood where they're like right 
before they leave high school, all trying to like decide who they're going to be as adults. And then we have a film like Slacker, which is so little on plot. It really just like takes you from character to character, really just trying to show you Austin, Texas and try to give you a feel of that city. But when it came to the Grand Hotel, I like compared it to all five of these movies that have really light or no plot at all. And I'm like, all these films still accomplish something. You know, I get something out of all these films. But by the end of Grand Hotel, I'm like, why were all these characters here? Like they want to talk about like and show this hotel and and show all the characters coming in and out. And I understand that like they directly say that to us. But what is the point of this movie other than, hey, look at this actress that you like isn't she pretty isn't he handsome in this tuxedo why would this movie exist see where i now to take kind of like that is that it's not for people like me and you it's not for people who are so involved in the filmmaking process i don't want to use the term cinephile but i get we are cinephiles in many ways and this movie is not for only us it's for everyone to consume and where the movies that i think of i said off the top movies like a movie like Avengers or it's a mad, 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 mad world or like the oceans movies like those kind of fit. But I think an even better film for this to compare to are movies like Valentine's day and, and new year's Eve. Those like really big ensemble, a list uh, actors all in one film. That's pretty lighthearted and just wants to tell like humanistic stories. And so that's where grand hotel kind of fits that mold for me is that it's for everyone to just go in and be like oh look there's john barrymore and oh look there's uh there's greta garbo and oh look there's lionel barrymore with his brother john barrymore like the, like two big actors from the same family on the same screen including then joan crawford and then um wallace beery like all in the same film and on the same screen so it's it's not for us john it's for other people but i did like it because it's pretty cool for me to see all these characters because and these actors just because that's not who I grew up with. And so I was able to appreciate like what they represented for people back then. Um, and I, I do feel like though, there are some, there's some depth to the characters that makes it kind of interesting to kind of pick apart and dive a little bit deep into, but you're right. The story is pretty shallow. It's all there. There's not really much to kind of take away from only like little bits here and there, but even those things are like, ah, nothing that you had to dive too deep in, to to like extrapolate and get yeah just it's hard to understand this movie i like really spent a lot of time just like digging through it to understand why people like it so much um because it is not highly regarded amongst all the uh, best picture winners but it is definitely on the higher end and i think your reference to like the valentines at the new years i haven't seen either of those movies but um there are some of those films that i have seen with like these big ensemble characters but even those films you know it's about romance for the most part and while there is that kind of fluidity of romance throughout grand hotel it's it's very limited and it really just feels like scene to scene they're just making it up whatever comes to them and well these characters would be cool if they shared a couple lines and then we move over to this character who shares a couple lines and it's like what none of this is building to anything none of this really goes anywhere i just felt uh, overall let down well let me ask you this then is it fair to still use the, well, it was made in the 30s, well, it was made with not as much, you know, other films to base it off of, or well, that they're just filmmaking practices aren't the same as today, where a lot of the movies you did reference had to base itself off other things, had time to develop and, and see how a romance was told on screen, you know, because this is, for me, I still watch these movies and, and can still recognize that 
we're not fully developed in the in the storytelling process with filmmaking. And so not everything's going to be as strong as films we're going to see today who can use not only today's technology, but the the process that was used before for now almost 100 years of, to tell these stories. Whereas at this point in 1932, we got maybe 30 years and only a few, only five years worth of actual talkies to that will express more emotions and romance at a much deeper level than in silent films. Yeah, I, I do think that's something to take take a look into, but that still kind of feels just like an excuse to me because this film really feels more just like an issue with the writing than it does with anything else. Like I think the cinematography is, is really focused and lasered in on all these characters and we get like a general idea of like the location. While I wish it was a little bit more, I just think everything really just focuses on the actors and the audience is just expected to just like be obsessed with these actors and really just focus in on specifically that and enjoy specifically that. But with us being so far removed from this kind of era and even these actors, like we see John Barrymore and we've definitely seen and heard of Joan Crawford, even her later films, like they're still so dissociated from us who are in like our mid twenties who just don't really know these actors that well. So without knowing these actors and that was the most interesting part to me is that I got to see like, and kind of inspect, like why do people like John Barrymore so much? Like why is Joan Crawford like this just ace in the hole for so many people? And that was like the most interesting part. But then I like stop myself and I'm like, I'm not, I don't care about these characters. Like I'm not even thinking about the movie. I'm pretty bored by what's even going on because I just don't know where it's going or what's even going to possibly happen. And by the end I was let down. So coming from your point of view, is there like a certain scene that jumps out to you right away that you found like really interesting and intriguing? Well, I think I want to start at, at the beginning where we get to see all these characters for the first time on screen. And that is, they do it in a really cool way. And I know you liked it too, which is how um, all the characters were making phone calls at the beginning. And that was a way to kind of give some background on who they were and why they were at the hotel, which is a pretty unique way to, to set things up. Uh, and it's not really used that much where it's just like, boom, 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 boom. Here's all the characters. And here's the reason why I'm doing this. Yeah, it was a great way to set up everyone, actually. It was really daunting, um, even for me now. You know, we live in a TikTok age where, like, seven seconds is too long, right? But even now, like, it was overwhelming by how much, like, just audio was going on. There was the background music. You could hear background people talking. You could hear everybody on the phone cutting in between each of their conversation. It's like, whoa, what is going on? And it was, like, dazzling and hard for just me as a viewer but i really enjoyed that like i like being challenged and trying to figure out what's going on in a film and i thought it was a pretty bold way to open up the film by just being like boom we're jumping in like here's all this character we're going to deliver all their kind of like general backstory through these phone calls um, and i thought that was really well done and a really interesting way to not only set up the hotel with the all the call girls that were kind of setting up and routing the calls but also introducing the grand hotel as like our main set and our main location for the whole film yeah, and I think that's actually something that it makes it hard for us to connect with is like when you see like all the telephone operators is like, oh, that's kind of funny how like that used to be the way that people would connect with each other. And I don't think telephone operators are really a thing as much <laughs> anymore, unless it's just like helping with customer service stuff, but just like digressing there for a little bit. But I, yeah, I agree. It's like pretty cool with how they set it up. And then where it then goes from there is getting into the actual lobby of the hotel. And it's actually one of my favorite shots of the film because um, it's actually probably the only like 
well done technical shot of the film um you can let me know if you disagree with that but so it's a shot that's behind the hotel like lobby desk the hotel lobby is a big circle and the the lobby desk is as circular as well where all the employees sit in the middle and the shot just keeps going you know panning back and forth following john barrymore's character and then as he's like looking at all the other characters that are like kind of introducing themselves and going to the desk but then you get pracing's character who's saying like oh i have a stenographer coming who is Flem's character then you have otto uh which is lionel barrymore's character and he's this man who's is about to die because of some unnamed sickness and he's like oh what well, i want to live in i want to be in a fancier hotel room than the one you gave me and it's really cool because it's about like three minutes i think about a total runtime where it's just a single this single like one take shot where she keeps going back and forth but the main focus is john barrymore's character kind of like lurking behind and kind of establishing establishing himself as like that burglar like thief uh, that he is in the film yeah, I did actually enjoy that. And I enjoyed kind of setting up the overall location of like the lobby to give us kind of like a feel of where we are. And it really just intrigues us into like who these characters are. And is John Barrymore going to be our lead? Is is the Baron going to be this person who kind of sneaks in and interwebs and connects all these characters? Um, it kind of really set us up to be like, oh, who's who? Like, who's the person that we're supposed to be following here? Who's the person that like, where sh- is like the plot going to go and, and follow behind? Yeah, it it keeps up that like intrigue, and I was kind of saying it before with how the multi storyline story structure that this film is. It's it you don't know who the main character is, so you don't know who we're supposed to care about or we're rooting for, and that's supposed to take place over the time of the film. But then the trouble that we ran into is that it almost doesn't develop at all. It pretty much stays that same like, okay, why do I care? Why do I care? Okay, that's sort of happening, but that's not really enough for me to be invested. And then all of a sudden, the movie's over. There's films that don't have to be that way that you can still be kind of invested in. Have you ever seen Slacker, Ben? No, I actually haven't. That's one of those movies you listed that I have not seen. Yeah, that's like a film that I think is kind of closest to this in terms of like the overall genre, which is just trying to set a scene of a bunch of young kids, early, late 20s, that are just kind of struggling with their life through Austin. And you meet like all bunch of weird characters and you're jumping from like character to character. Um, and then by the end, it just kind of explodes and just trails out. And there's not really like a plot to that movie. There's not really like an ending. And that felt close to this, but I still felt some sort of like satisfaction. And I still felt like I understood what they were going for. But in Grand Hotel, I just felt kind of, why why does this movie exist? Like, if they really wanted to go into the Grand Hotel, which we can talk about, like, why didn't they show more of the Grand Hotel? Why don't we get more of the staff of the Grand Hotel? Like, if this movie was really all about the Grand Hotel, just dive more into it. Like, let's let's do it. But it just felt like it was so fo- focused on, like, giving all these big actors screen time that nothing else mattered. Yeah, there's not many shots of the hotel. And actually, a shot that I really did like was this bird's eye view of the hotel lobby from the top floor of the hotel mm-hmm. so it kind of, and it was like really distorted and like german expressionist type of like set design and filmmaking almost um which is kind of funny because this movie's supposed to take place i'm pretty sure in germany but anyways mm-hmm. but that's like the one like kind of big view you get of the hotel but like yeah that's not that much and then the hotel staff the only like main character you get to see is the porter because he's at the beginning saying that his wife is going to labor and then that's completely like disregarded until the end of the film and even then it's like so what was the point of that um yeah they definitely could have done more with the with the set itself as the hotel um the hotel rooms aren't like 
that amazing. There's nothing like too crazy of that you see like visually. It's just all about the characters and the stars, which I think there's some merit to that because they are celebrities and they are the the names of that time. And you know, I I I do value that a little bit. Yeah, that's something else I had an issue with. While it was at, in the very beginning of the film, I thought it was cool to see the different hotels, and you know, we get to see each character has a kind of a different look in their hotel. Um, the way that Joan Crawford's is essentially connected to praising her her boss, and that's kind of like this weird setup between their characters and the dichotomy between the two. And the way the Baron is kind of like sneaking in between all these different rooms, and we have Greta Garbo as the ballerina who just is so like (laughs) a little insane and just losing her mind but she has this gorgeous room we just didn't get enough of the overall hotel based around just these these individual rooms you know i wish the film focused a little bit more on it and even in terms of like the cinematography i felt it was it was simple but not enough to really like give some purpose to why these decisions were being made. It felt like, all right, we're going to like slowly dolly in or slowly like pan over to this character simply. So they're in frame and that's it. Like we're going to keep, you know, enough headspace, enough space for their chest. So you like see their full outfit and you see them talking and that's it. Like this shot, it's only purpose is to like get their lines out and then move forward. Like nothing really felt intentional in terms of why certain shots were chosen and why certain directions were made overall in the film. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things kind of reading up about this film was that Edmund Golding, who's the director, he was nicknamed the Lion Tamer because he kind of had to balance all these char- all these actors and actresses and their personalities. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know like what they were like as people. I'm sure that they were pretty like they were a lot to handle. So I'm sure his focus was just on like, let me just try and get them in the scene <laughs> type of directing rather than just trying to do mm-hmm. something huge and creative. Um, and again, it's also a big studio system movie. It's you know Irving Thalberg, who's the producer. He produced the Broadway Melody, uh, and he would go on to to produce another uh, Best Picture winner, Mutiny on the Bounty. But he's like more well known for being like kind of the head of MGM and putting the the actors' asses in on the set and making sure that they just make money for MGM, which is awful and like disgusting. But also. I can't fault him. That's his job. And that's just how the system was back then for how, you know, you handle actors and actresses on set. Yeah. I think that's, there's still a directors that I think are like that. They're kind of just the ringleaders to make sure everything goes well. I think a lot of like sitcom TV shows, directors are a lot like that. And I've definitely heard just little bits here and there of just old Hollywood and especially this golden era in the thirties where a lot of directors were just like the ringleaders and the producer would be like, no, this is like what I want visually. Like, this is what you should do. And the director was there to listen to the producer and like get the job done. But the aspect of you talking about the actors really to just work and cooperate with each other, I found like really interesting because when you dive in and look through the research of this film and, you know, of course we go in and we look at IMDb and we look at the trivia and that's like a base level of just like learning a little bit about the film. And then we dive in deeper with more research from there. But if you look at the trivia for this film, it's just all about the actors. The trivia is barely about the film. It really is all about like, oh, well, Greta Garbo was so excited to meet and work with John Barrymore. And everybody was so worried that they were going to like fight because they were like the two big it stars. And it's, it's really interesting to see like this constant conversation about like, oh, well, 
Greta Garbo was angry because Joan Crawford wanted like top billing because she was on the rise. And all of this behind the scenes drama was seemed to be really made up as the years have passed. There's been certain novels written and Joan Crawford has talked about how there was really no bad blood on that set and all the actors got along. And it really just seemed like it was all manufactured simply to get people to go see the film in theaters. And this was the highest grossing film of that year. Yeah. And I think that's just, I think it's like a sad thing about when we, look back at these movies it's it is more about the actors and the the celebrity aspect of it which is why this film is important to talk about with celebrities and and that kind of status but it is how it's like sort of archived with that they people would rather focusing on the actors and themselves rather than just like the actual context of the film because yeah it it does lose some of its uh sparkle if you want to call it uh you know with what what the film could be and i actually feel like if this movie was made today it would actually be a really really good compelling film it would, they'd be able to do a lot more in terms of you know maybe sex and you know the the death that happens at the end but i think you'd be able to get a lot more from the actors and the actresses just because we are again like at a stage in filmmaking where we know what to do you know we can base stuff and we know how to make things better than it was before which i think is really important to think about when we are critiquing these like really early hollywood films and especially these best picture winners and so one of the things that makes it really unique for these actors who did like each other. It wasn't just some manufactured bullshit that they hated each other or that they didn't get along on set was that the chemistry really did work when they were on screen and from scene to scene. And one of the, one of the earliest moments in the film that I thought the chemistry was just perfect, like hundred percent. That was awesome. Was it was between John Barrymore and Joan Crawford's character. So the Baron and Flem, not Flem Chin, you know, her full name, her full name is Flem Chin, but she likes to be called Flem for some reason, which is every character has a little nickname in this movie. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Flem is a is an interesting one. But anyway, so the Baron and, and Flem are like kind of flirting with each other and kind of going back and forth. But she's definitely a little bit more standoffish about it, like not trying not to give him too much of the time of day type of thing. But she tells him that he's a, that she's a stenographer. And so he says, I don't suppose you take some dictation of mine sometime. And Ooh. as sleazy as that line <laughs> is, I I loved it because Joan Crawford doesn't do like an ugh kind of face or like roll her eyes. She like plays into it. She like has like a little bit of a smile and and it and it makes it not as sleazy as it is, but it makes it like kind of fun and like flirtatious and like and again, if like if the movie was to be remade, I actually would love to keep that line in there just because it's kind of like it's just witty and outside of the sleaziness, it's pretty well crafted and put into the film. Oh yeah, definitely. It's like so tongue in cheek, little cheeky joke yeah, right there. Yeah. And John Barrymore like kills it. And I think a lot of other actors and even modern actors, like that's a hard line to deliver without sending like a huge creep. And he's very suave. He's like an early James Bond before James Bond. I did notice with Baron, he has great chemistry. Well, John Barrymore in particular has great chemistry with Greta Garbo, who's also this kind of love interest in the film. I, while I do find the film very odd, I'll just set it up here. So essentially, Baron is going into this uh, very famous ballerina's room because he wants to steal some pearl necklace and he's waiting there in the shadows, but she comes back suddenly and he like sees her having this big big uh, melodramatic monologue to herself about how she can't do it anymore and there's too much pressure and no one understands her life and she's basically alluding to that she's going to go and then take her own life and because of that baron this character played by barrymore comes out and he confronts her 
And the line from uh, Krushin Kaya says, who are you? And Baron replies, someone who happened to be hiding in your room. And she says, why? And he said, just to be alone in your room, to breathe the air you breathe. So already it's very dated. And it's like, what man would ever talk to a woman like that in a flirtatious way? It's very creepy that he just like confronts her and he's in her room. And what I found most jarring is that her reaction is just like, what? Who are you? Like, it's not like, what the fuck? Like, why is she not freaking out or screaming? Like, she's just like, oh my God, my savior is here. And they just like fall in love instantly in one scene. And it's like, I'm trying to struggle to find out like, is Baron just doing this to like still steal the pearls? Is he conflicted because he actually does like her? And, or does he not care about her? Like if he wanted the pearls, he would have just let her go kill herself and would have taken them and gone. So he obviously actually cares about her. What did you think about this scene? So I actually felt that he recognized you go know, see here's her saying that she's gonna like end it yeah that she's gonna kill herself and so for me it was more like he's jumping in there to to save her he's trying to to stop her from doing it and so i didn't see it as like as creepy as that but it's definitely like a little like suspect you know to kind of do that but also at the same time maybe he had that realization he's like i have this moment and this chance to to save her so i'm gonna jump in there and kind of say whatever i'm gonna say but then they do fall in love like pretty quickly. It's a it's pretty a, quickly. It's, a, it's, it's like, in the scene yeah. they fall in love. Yeah. The same yeah, scene. Yeah. It's it's good. It's like a it's a good scene to see them like acting together and it's like it's nice and sweet. He's trying to be this like good person to her. Um, which is like something she like really needs. And and something about uh Grishan Kaya's character is that she's the aspect of a celebrity where they're too overwhelmed with their status and yeah you can call that privilege whatever you want to call it but they are people too and so she's pretty overwhelmed that she's almost fading as a ballerina and that no one really cares about her work anymore so she's just struggling all around so so she finally has like this this person who's compassionate towards her which is why she just immediately grabs onto him and i think for him it's like you know he's this person who's down on his luck with money and he's like having to steal from people but now there's someone who doesn't know that about him and she just appreciates what he's doing for her at, at an emotional level so that's yeah. kind of like what i take away from that scene yeah that's totally what's happening i just don't feel like it works in this scenario just because it's like well, such an odd scenario to be introduced to someone and then for it to all be played out so neatly and wrapped up where she's just like you are the man who's who's changed my life and i love you because of it you're exactly what i've been missing like clearly this movie was written by an out of touch dude who's just like oh yeah women they just need a man and they're going to be happy and like that's that's what they're really sad about is just being alone yeah I, I i agree with that i do agree with that and i think the other reason why it's so weird and and jarring for how it happens is that not even like 10 minutes before or a few scenes before, like Baron was flirting with Flem's character and they, that chemistry is perfect. Like that works great. And like, you almost want, like that should have been the focus of like how then he, like Baron has to deal with like praising who's like really creepy with Flem. But then when you introduce Greta Garbo's character, it's just like, why, why are you falling in love with her? Like she like is barely in this film, like after that. And then even at the end when she doesn't even know that he dies it, <laughs> And it's so like, I didn't it's know like how, kind to, of, how to feel about that. <laughs> it, it's pointless. It's like it's pointless, like addition. And 
and that's where I wish like you had some, you know, you had films to kind of base off of like how you can do that better because she doesn't like, it doesn't need to be included. And I don't think the film would change at all. If Greta Garber's character was just not included in the film. W- would you agree with that? I mean, they kind of need her to like steal her pearls, but like her pearls could have been someone else's, you know, like she doesn't yeah, need but then to be he in goes the movie. To steal, like Otto's money <laughs> in the card game. So he could have gotten that yeah. money a different from like they had that yeah. plot set up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's how I feel about this this plot where the very little plot that there is it's just feels like each scene was just like made for each individual actor to like communicate with and that's it like not in regards to overall story or like a film it was just like oh this would be cool if like Greg Garbo said this to John Barrymore and <laughs> if John Barrymore was like this suave guy and talking about the very end where like the uh, Greta Garbo is just like where is he? Like, I've been looking for the Baron. Does anyone see him? I found that scene to be so funny because it was like so clueless that she had no idea, even though just yeah. seconds before they carry his dead body through the through the lobby of the hotel. It's just, I, but I'm pretty sure they were supposed to be like playing it up as like a very sad moment where it's like, oh, she's going to be all alone. Like her one true hero. Everyone in the audience is like, oh, no, John Barrymore, my yeah. love. He's he's gone. He's dead. My beautiful man crush. Yeah, they should but have told her. Just... They, they should have. They, they should have <laughs> told their character. I, I I agree that the ending is is pretty clunky. But how great is it though to watch Greta Garbo just like you know pontificate on screen about how she's gonna kill it? Like not no not the fact she's gonna kill herself, but the fact that she's acting and doing this like really dramatic monologue. Like that's what that's the purpose of the film. That's what makes it like fun and and enjoyable to watch and and to take in from a very basic level of just film entertainment. Isn't that just like good as is? And I'm saying that to be devil's advocate. I don't actually believe that. <laughs> no, because I was so bored by her scenes. I think Greta Garbo is, is the worst performance in this whole film. And I think it's because yeah. maybe she's a little older of an actress at this point. So maybe she's more like a little vaudeville style where she's really playing it up and hiding it even more. And I just think her character is so whiny and annoying. Like she doesn't have any good reason to complain. It's not like her husband was just murdered or they give her this like interesting backstory. She's just a ballerina that doesn't get enough attention. Like why? Why would I want to watch this? Like I could just go to YouTube yeah. and just watch some person complain about their videos, not getting enough. Like who wants to watch this as like entertainment? I definitely don't. No, no, I, I get that. And I still, you know, from just, I want to be like from a human level and just like wanting to be like compassionate towards others. It's like, Oh, you feel for her. And and that's what they're trying to get out of audiences. Just like, Oh, I feel bad for Greta Garba, which, which is pretty effective, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of also pretty basic, but let's get away from her because the true like star performance of the film is Joan Crawford, who is like, I, I think fucking amazing in this film. She's great. I do think she's great, but I'm also not that big of a fan of her character. I just feel like her uh, phlegm as a character just doesn't really go anywhere. And she kind of contradicts herself in the end. But I do think she gives this great performance where it's like, you could totally tell just by this one performance and the way they dress her in this super like low v cut dress that they're like totally playing up her sexuality and how she's like this rising star and and she's just drawing every man's attention like the way she does in this film also in the auditorium seats like she's drawing everyone's eyes and she's a great like naturalistic uh actor who's down to earth yet still like suave and kind of above elite over you and she kind of just like controls and dominates every scene that she's in she has this like amazing presence yeah, I, I love her presence. I 
I don't think she like tries to be this person that tries to dominate and take advantage of people, even though that's what it seems like at the end. I think she's just like, and and I think that has to do with the with the time of the film, which was this is you know made in the Great Depression. Is that she's supposed to be this normal person, a stenographer? That's what all she's like constantly referred to is just by her job title, stenographer. Um, but she she's supposed to like kind of embody this like that everyone's going through these struggles and that everyone is desperate for money and that and everyone needs to kind of fend for themselves and that's kind of like what she represents in, and they all do in many ways but she but that's definitely how she represents it too is that she's just like well i can use my looks to to get some kind of advantage in life and i can use you know my work too as a stenographer to to get money just to be able to pass by and and enjoy life which is kind of what happens in the end with her and Otto is that she kind of realizes that well I can now run away with this guy and kind of get away from the shittiness of the last like two days that happened in the film where she fell in love with a guy and then sees him dead within you know a matter of out you know hours after meeting him or I guess 24 hours after meeting him so I, I just found her character just in every scene just to hit it right out of the ballpark whether it was lines she delivers her emotions her how she dressed, how she like just handled herself. I, I thought she was just really great. I thought she was the, if we wanted to rank the, the, the character roles and performances, she's my one, number one in the film. Yeah, definitely. Number one. I think beyond that, Baron is John Barrymore is definitely up there. And let's talk about yeah. the, uh, uh, Lionel Barrymore played, uh, Oh yeah. Otto Lionel in the film. Awesome. I actually thought Lionel was better then John, what, what do you think? Would you pick John or would you pick Lionel? It's hard because they're like such different characters, which was probably funny uh, for two brothers to like play such drastically different characters. Who Lionel's yeah. is this wild free spirit because he really is just giving up because, you know, he's slowly on his way out. He has some sort of sickness where they keep alluding to it that he's going to die soon, but they never really say why. So he gets like the fun aspect of the way he kind of bring the spirits up in a room and also just like, you know, shout out the man because he used to be employed by praising so you get that really cool like dynamic and theme of the film but i still think i like john barry more just because i love this like suave dude this guy who comes in he kind of owns the scene and how can you not love a thief in a film you know it's such an interesting character because you never know what's going to happen well i'm going to stick on Otto's side and i i like lionel more than john uh barrymore's character but but both really great and i think what one of the things that the there's one scene with Otto where he's like, I just want my Louisiana flip, which I thought was just really funny. I don't even know what a Louisiana flip yeah, is, that was cute. but I I just want one now. Uh, but he, ha- he has some really great lines and kind of his whole uh, character is, yeah, is battling pricing because he was working at pricing's factory and then he got sick and he like realized like, oh shit, I didn't do anything with my life, um, which plays into again that great depression kind of mindset where like a lot of people were in that situation where they had worked all their lives at a factory or at some store just something and then and it's all kind of gone and then um so they kind of have to like make up time for themselves but um there's there's one line that i i really love and so it's when he when Preston kind of confronts him they're like at a bar and and Otto doesn't like can't just can't take the shit anymore from him and he goes you cannot discharge me I am the master for the first time. You cannot discharge me. I am sick and going to die. You understand? I'm going to die and nobody can do anything to me anymore. Nothing can happen to me anymore. Before I can be discharged, I'll be dead. And he laughs. He just laughs in the face of praising. Maniacally, and, yeah. Yeah, mani- like maniacally and just like, and, be, and just accepting the fact that it's my life. Fuck off. 
I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to drink my Louisiana flips. I'm going to spend all my money at this hotel and gamble and drink and, and dance with what, like he dances with phlegm and, and he's really awkward about it, which again is like really great with like Lionel's performance because he plays this like dweeby guy who's probably, has, I mean, we don't know if he's married or if he has kids or anything, but has very little interaction with women, probably hasn't had sex that much in his life and just kind of lived his life as just like this factory worker and just like just trying to make something of himself but really not much of himself which is what leads to his whole like i'm gonna go on this just you know binge this like binge of my money and life and just enjoy it yeah he definitely adds like the levity to the film and uh, of course they just get him drunk like almost throughout the entire film he's just (laughs) constantly drunk but i just wish the character was like pushed more i do like that line that you read of just him kind of confronting praising truly um confronting him and just kind of like saying you can't hurt me in like any way no matter what you try to say that's really interesting and i just wish they kind of dove deeper into his character and that theme in particular you know when there is the murder later on where uh we can jump into that right now where praising kind of um, kills doesn't kind of, he kills John Barrymore's character, the Baron with a telephone. (laughs) He he definitely kills him. And um, we get uh, Otto who comes in, who also sees this death because uh, Flem goes and tells him and we get that kind of like power that he still has over him. He's like, I'm not going to like hold this a secret. Like, why would I hold you? And praising's like, I'll pay you. Like I'll do whatever. Just like stay silent. So we do kind of a little bit get that, kind of arc to circle together and come back but it's just not enough i wish we had some like bigger realization from Otto, where he's just like you know i think i, I learned a lot from the grand hotel i i really just got this like worthy <laughs> experience and i'm ready to die like i wish there was a final like little end cap for his character yeah and i think that's that kind of plays into the the literal revolving door of the grand hotel where it's like just life kind of goes on so at the end when him and phlegm do leave you know I feel like, yeah, he's going to die soon, but at least he's going to die with, with Joan Crawford by his side and probably drinking his Louisiana flips on, you know, in, in Paris and just enjoying his life uh, there. But it is interesting how he does finally have that power with Pracing in, in their relationship, if you want to call it, where he's he, he holds Pracing's destiny by the literal balls. And he's just like, I'm going to tell people I'm not going to hide this. Why would I hide this? I'm going to turn you in. When even though praising, you know, begs him to do something like he could do this one good thing, but he's like, no, I'm not. You screwed me my whole life. You hated me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in terms of like the death scene of uh, the Baron, so he gets attacked because he's <laughs> stealing. What do they call it? The, uh, the pocketbook. The pocketbook. Like pocket yes. With marks. I love how they call money marks in this film. It's really funny. Um and because I like we never hear that. I can't even remember the last time I've heard someone call money a mark or anything like that. I mean, we're we're Americanized. It's a dollar to us. Like even you know, going to other countries and like hearing like the euro or or the pound when you're in uh when you're in the UK. Oh, is a so mark? Is a mark yeah. like a a German dollar? Yeah, yeah. The, a mark is um. I don't know if I don't know if that's what they still call it today, but back then, like a mark was like what they called a. Uh, money and bills oh, if that's the case i'm definitely yeah. cutting this because i sound like an idiot because <laughs> this whole time i thought this was just like slang for dollar bills well no but they're oh it's... they do call them marks wow i'm an idiot yeah i was thinking <laughs> I that you're... there was just like u.s slang for dollars <laughs> oh no i thought i thought you were just saying that like oh just not used to hearing the, the word marks no money. no i it's literally like thought it was just like some american 
old slang word for money or dollars. Oh, remember this takes place in Berlin. We're yeah, not but, in but that's also an issue with this fucking movie. They like never really address that. It's even in Berlin. There's no aspects of Berlin that comes in or Germany that comes in and all. It's like so separate from everything else. It's there's that there's that one shot though, the hotel that looks like German expressionism. Oh yeah, that's how you're supposed to know. <laughs> that's how you're supposed to know. Keep all this into the at, into the podcast. This is great. <laughs> so what if we fucked up? <laughs> So Baron is in his room trying to yeah. uh, steal Pracing's pocketbook, and he basically walks in on him stealing it. And they have this big argument, and he's like, "No, I'm not going away." And Baron gives him the book back, but uh, Pracing's so mad that he like just attacks him and beats him to death with a phone. But what's really weird about this scene, and it, it could be like this error of the code and not being able to show as much violence. There's this really just like sharp cut. Where as soon as he's going to attack him with a telephone, it just jump cuts and they're like falling to the ground. And we don't even like see them fully fall to the ground. We just like see them fall instantly together and that's it. Like they fall off frame. How did you feel about that scene? Because it's a very important moment in the film that Baron dies. It carries us to the very finale and end of the movie. I uh yeah, it's a little clunky with how it's edited and and how they pull it off. I when when I first watched the film, I was I was a little shocked like that that's like the big thing that happens, especially because it happens, I think, with 10 minutes left in the film. Yep. Like it's literally like 10 minutes left in the film, and then that's when the Baron dies, and you feel like that should be in the middle, or maybe that's like the whole purpose of the film is like this like murder mystery. So I was I was kind of eh, because I'm like, well, what does this do now for us? Like what where are we gonna go from here? There's just so much to be left open, and then there's so much that we also don't know about the baron and like his backstory because i don't know about you but when i hear that someone's a baron i think they're very rich so why is this guy now have to you know be a thief like i guess he was a gambler but that's never really said and then you know it is the great depression so yeah maybe he lost his money but even that's not explicitly said and i know that it was probably implied with the time and what that was going on but for watching it today it's kind of like there's not enough there to to make you you know give a complete character development story like story um for uh for the baron so it's a little weird and, and clunky of how it's done and because there's so little time left in the movie it's kind of hard to like really emotionally take it in although the one emotional part about his death that i still cannot get over is that his dog uh, adolphus just gets like handed off to some like random person in the hotel and he's like where's my human and i was like gonna cry <laughs> just seeing that the dog just like has no idea what he's doing it is sad that like you see the dog and they're definitely trying to play it up about how sad it is that this dog's now alone and doesn't have an owner but i just like didn't care about it. baron's character i didn't really understand how one hit of a telephone murders someone you don't see the body you don't even see how like the impact of the phone or anything like the whole scene is so clunky and it's just like oh that's yeah. what the essentially the climax of this movie is is the dude getting hit off screen after a jump cut what why yeah yeah it's it's not great but again it's just cool to see Wallace beery you know kill john barrymore on screen that's the appeal that's literally <laughs> all it's there for um which it is what it is uh but also to kind of piggyback on the the dog, Adolphus, is there's actually this one good line, um, where, and it's at the beginning of the film. So I actually think that helps play more into John Barrymore falling in love with two women. 
um, so he gets a knock on his door when he's in a hotel and he goes, excuse me, I'm busy. And he's petting his dog, Adolphus. And he goes, Adolphus, this is a curious thing for one gentleman to say to another. But as a matter of fact, you are the one thing I really love in this world. So it's a little like, you know, it's cute. it has some homophobic <laughs> connotations that it's a little weird for him to say, that he, you know, to like, but yeah, it's very cute. But I think that like plays well into like the emotional aspect because now, so we have this guy who's down on his luck. He loves his dog. It's like the one thing he truly loves and connects with, but then he finds Flem and he's like, oh, I really like you. And then he finds Gresham Kai and she's like, and he's like, oh my God, I love you. And I, I just want to spend my life with you and be with you. And then he dies. And so that whole arc is like what's supposed to keep the audience in, uh, involved in it and be like, oh God, John Barrymore is dead. That's so sad. And it's like the tearjerker aspect of it. Yeah, no, I definitely see that just because they're so separated from these actors. But I just like don't think that makes a good film. You know, having actors that people like and they are so invested in these actors off screen that it becomes so powerful to see them do these certain acts and performances on screen. But for us, if you're just like connected from that, I just don't think it works. You know, when I see a bunch of famous actors in a Wes Anderson film and what uh, we haven't talked about is that the Grand Budapest Hotel Wes Anderson film is so heavily inspired by this movie but if you were to compare that movie to this movie, it's just so grand, not to, no pun intended, <laughs> it's so grand in scale of of what the film is about. You know, we have just as many characters, just as many famous actors, but we have these compelling characters with like the bellboy and his relationship um, to the head of the hotel. And we have this like backdrop of, of the war going on uh, around the hotel and around the country. And we just get so much more from these characters, yet it still tells a complete story with themes and a complete package, which I just don't think this film has. It just feels like a bunch of scenes put together with a bunch of famous people and they put a little bow at the end by saying it's a hotel. So like anything can happen and that's it. Here's a film. Hope you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And still play the devil's advocate that it's not, it's for a lot of people to enjoy, but I do, I do think that there is some character development and some thematical aspects of it that you can dive into um but yeah it is not there and and most of those themes that you can dive into we've already hit on which is it's a you know coming at the era of the great depression you know it's people trying to like just survive and um and do well for themselves at at a struggling time um but yeah it it's pretty pretty much not there um so kind of is what it is but there is one character who you could say is well off for himself and that's a uh, and that's praising's character who i really wanted to talk about because he's just the worst person in the world the worst the worst and they give yeah. him so much time yeah. in this movie and his character and so his there's, so, there's so, so much time boring. so boring like why do we watching scenes of like a bunch of businessmen talking about a, a merger and then the merger doesn't even yeah. happen and the merger has no connection to this story at all it's like just happens to be the reason why pricing is at the hotel and that's it that's why they talk about it yeah i i agree but it is what like kind of heightens the drama for him because not only does he kill the baron but he also is otto's uh antithesis in the film we touched on before with how otto dealt with him but pricing he's he's a hypocrite he's a very much a hypocrite because the beginning of the film he really goes into how he's a family man and he has a wife and and he he would never do anything like like lying or, or cheating or anything. Yep. And at the end of the film, not not only does he kill someone, 
he he lies in the merger because he says that he had an acquisition in Manchester, but actually didn't. And we don't even know what the mm-hmm. merger is even for. Like, don't even say like what, uh, what factory like he even owns and what nope. he's trying to do. But he also tries to sleep with uh with Flem, and you know what? And you can take whatever you want with Flem, whether she was trying to solicit herself or not. But he definitely was trying to solicit her and definitely trying to like pay off so he could have sex with her. And he's kept on saying, oh, I'm a family man and I have a wife. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he was definitely trying to sleep with her. That's so apparent. But whether she is just, you know, she's a character that's trying to play the game. And I think they constantly kind of compare her to um, the ballerina character as this kind of rich elite who is still just not happy in her life. While Flem is this like struggling lower class girl who's really just smart witted and and plays the game and she knows like how to like sexify herself and and sell herself to men essentially to basically get forward in life which is an interesting dichotomy between the two women and leading into like praising his relationship with her it's just to like slowly build him up more and more as like a piece of shit before he finally murders baron right after that yeah just completely cementing himself as a piece of shit exactly yeah, it's uh yeah there there is definitely not a lot there which it it is what it is it's not for people like me and john and other people who consider themselves cinephiles who are really into to filmmaking that it's not for us it's for a, a very wide general audience because it's a it's a soap opera it's a soap opera film which is you know we were talking about this before recording is that it just fits into that generic um and at the time for i guess what it would have been a, a chick flick even though that's not a, a, a genre of film at all <laughs> it's completely misunderstood but it is supposed to like fit into that more domesticated mold of the time and it was written by a man and he just expecting what women should want which is why there's so much like heightened emotions and not really much happens it's just very generic you know bullshit you know, character development and especially in the women you can see the way it's like fueled from a man's perspective there's tons of oh, the male gaze from every single character they like eye up all the women and there's even a specific shot where praising is like eyeing up Flem's legs while she is like typing for him yeah yeah he's giving yeah he's giving the dictation he can't even finish his sentences no no it's disgusting but what i found interesting is that while this was written by a man uh vicky baum who's the writer of the original german novel um, she was very interested in helping and help write an adaption, and she even went to the U.S. in 1931 um, and met up with MGM. But uh, Irving Thalberg, the producer, simply shot her down and said, "Yeah, we'll take your notes and we'll take your ideas, and you'll be our uh, technical advisor. You know, we'll go to you when we have any questions regarding the novel." Well, uh, they never had any questions. Let me just say that she was kind yeah. of completely left out of the overall production of the film. Yeah, that, that's really really awful. <laughs> So it's pretty interesting that th- this also isn't the first Best Picture winner to be based on a novel written by, written by a woman. Uh, Simran was also written by a woman as well, based off of a novel that, that she had written. But it definitely felt, and we, we talked about in that episode, that there's a lot more to the female characters that isn't just sex. You know, it's not great. You know, it's not great what happens in, in Simran and the female characters, but in this film, it's just all about the sex and the sex appeal, which is what the big issues we had with the Broadway Melody, which is, again, it was an Irving Thalberg film, another MGM production where they don't give a, a shit about trying to make women strong. They're just like, well, let's make them as sexy as we can and get people to just buy into that. Well, it's interesting reading about this kind of error um, in film. The, the female population, it was about 60 to 80 percent female driven in terms of the film market. 
So yeah. while this was seeming kind of sexist from our point of view now at this point in time, this was beloved by a lot of women. And I think, like I was saying, the dichotomy between the two women in this film, I think a lot of people looked at the fashion and they looked at these romances and they looked at these two characters in, in specific and they could see themselves in either woman. You know, you get the the really rich elite class. If you're in a city going to a theater and you're watching this, you can kind of relate to this and the struggle of just like not being good enough or Flem, who is strong and independent because she like knows how to play the game. She's cutting her deals here and there because she knows that it'll get get her to a good place, get her money, you know, bring her higher up in uh, the overall world. But looking back at it now, it's like, this isn't enough like this. Everything, every decision and everything that's good for these women in this film in particular is just all about a man or pleasing a man in some sort of way. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> you know, it, it's all it's pretty awful and, and sleazy. And it, I, I hate to just say like that's just part of the era, but it it really was, which is which is really bad. But the film does do, uh, I think, a lot more than, than just that. It's just the fact that it was written by. A man, and it's pretty clear the intentions of the women. But I actually think, I, spe- I think Joan Crawford's character goes beyond that. I, I think Greta Garbo's character is pretty, is is, is stuck in in that kind of very uh, basic, st- yeah, yeah in that very basic like stereotype. Well, let's talk about Flem. So we've like guided her yeah. throughout this story, and we get to the very end where Baron's dead, and Otto knows about it, and they're kind of consoling each other. Somehow they're so attached to this character that they've known for three days. She's in love with him. Otto's like, he's the best man ever because he gave me my my money back. And I'm like, well, he did steal it. You don't even you don't even know that that he was literally trying to steal it from you, but he just felt bad because you're just dying old man. Well, it's more that he stood he like the Baron like stood up for him and like kind of embraced him like right away. He wasn't trying to steal the money at first. It just happened to be like, oh, I there. couldn't get the pearls. Here's fourteen thousand um, marks. marks. And let me just yeah steal it now. Yeah, marks, John, marks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just and when we get to the end and we're seeing like Otto console with Flem and uh, Joan Crawford's character, they're like so sad and and all of a sudden Otto's just like, well, I'm going to Paris. Like I'm leaving soon. Like, do you want to come with me? And she's like, what? Paris like she's immediately just not sad anymore she's like um yeah I'll go to Paris that sounds great like I'll do whatever you want and I'm just like oh come on like I like like the way she was playing like pricing and she was playing the game to like get above and like make her own career and travel but now it's just like you're literally just saying yes to this old creep that just like wants to fuck you in Paris just because you want to go to Paris like and that's how we end these two characters like what I don't even think he wanted to like sleep with her. I think he no was way. just like no from, way. Like, a friend. I, I I don't know. That that's no, not how no I saw. Way, like dude. Otto he was hornballed like, up. Otto's no way. No, uh, not him. I don't think he was like as hornballed up as 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 you thought. I mean, maybe I I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong. But I I I think Otto is. If it were, if this was uh if this was the Baron who was doing that, of course, absolutely <laughs> wants to sleep with her. But Otto's character, again, like I think that he was just so because he's gonna die, and I think he would rather just have like the time of his life, meaning that he can just enjoy himself and like going out and and and, and drinking and and spending the money. But if he sleeps with uh with with Flem, good for him. Uh, but <laughs> like, but I don't, I don't, I don't think like that. Like, I don't think the intention there was for him to sleep with her. Uh, but I do think she like her character is the problem is the problematic one and that in that relationship because it does seem like she's taking advantage of him 
because she starts like just spending his money. She just starts giving everyone money at the hotel as they're leaving. Because they're she's leaving, like, oh my God. yeah, yeah. And so like that, I, I did have a huge problem with that because you spend most of the film like really liking her character and and believing that that she's smarter than everyone, that she's better than just money, but she's you know she's down her on her luck because of the times, and so she's trying to just get back on her feet. And then she has this opportunity, and it's just like fuck it, I'm going to spend this guy's money, which is also not great. Yeah, I still look at it that way. I don't know. Like the way the scene before they were drinking their uh, Louisiana flip, uh, they were dancing a lot together. And I don't know. He just seemed like he was super interested in her sexually throughout that entire scene. So I just got weird vibes from him from there on out. And he's kind of absent. I don't know. I, know. I, I, I found it more just that he was just happy to be just dancing with someone like he just uh-huh. Like, I, I think he even says like oh, you know I never I've never like really danced before and and you you know he physically like you can tell like Lionel Barrymore made him be like not a great dancer and very clumsy yeah. so I think like that's mm-hmm. where a lot of that um, plays into but I mean I don't know. I could be wrong I hope I'm not wrong I I, I, <laughs> I hope I hope you're the wrong one John in this I don't know, you know it's so hard to see otherwise it, it it can be I don't know maybe I do have to go back and rewatch it but just from the, when I, when I first got it, I, I never got that intention, but you never know if these, with these old movies, like it, it definitely could have been there. So how did you feel with, uh, after they leave the hotel, you know, you see a bunch of people come flying right back into the grand hotel, almost as if we're about to start the film all over again. Uh, yeah, and we I, get the doctor saying the, uh, the infamous line from this film. <laughs> I like it. Cause I think a lot of what the film is, it's, it's about, just how life goes on and, and life is always like things are just always moving around you. And it's this film is really just supposed to be a, a snapshot of life of, of a few days in the grand hotel. This is what happened with these uh, four or five characters and, and, and Dr. Otterschlag who, who keeps saying that line of like, nothing ever happens in the grand hotel. Like he doesn't see all the true drama. He just sees it from like an outside perspective. Cause he just sees it, when they're at the bar and then just at when they're gambling in the, in the hotel, he doesn't really, he doesn't see much else. So I, I think that just supposed to be like a little, like this is how life works. Life just keeps on moving, even though the Baron's dead and Prasing got arrested and Grushin Kaya thinks Baron's still alive and still hoping that she's going to have him mm-hmm. <laughs> and like go on vacation with him. That That's how I took the ending with uh, that last shot of the people coming, going into the hotel. No, definitely. I mean, I got that same sense. They're, I mean, directly say it to us. People come, people go, but nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens in Vegas. You keep all the secrets. It's kind of like a before that kind of phrase. But I just think that maybe the way I'm looking at it now is like from a negative perspective where this film is so loose on the general plot and it's just this kind of barely connected story with all these little characters here and there and their interactions. But maybe that's what was so amazing about this film at the time. Maybe people... We're like, whoa, like you can make a movie that's like not just telling a story from A to Z. Like you can just like have a bunch of characters come in and then like it's just focusing on this like one point in time. And after that point in time and these characters interact, like that's it. Like that world continues on and that maybe that makes the audience go think more and be like, oh, wow, that like this film is a lot about the the, the location and these and these characters and Maybe I'm thinking more about like the other characters in the hotel. Like maybe that really sparks this like creative little flash in someone's mind as a viewer that it was like, wow, this is what movies can do. Like movies don't have to be just like a straight 
story from from one point to the end point, it can be more. Yeah, it it certainly can be. So do you feel like that your opinion on the film is slightly changed at all after kind of going through it? No, I, I hate this film. <laughs> <laughs> In and fact, that... I hate I hate this so much and I was so petty. I'm still going to read it, though. I went back and um, I made up my own um, little little phrase for the for the film. So, OK, in the very beginning, which you heard an audio recording of, we hear Grand Hotel always the same people come people go nothing ever happens so i was like hmm that's interesting i'll make my my own version which is very close to that grand hotel always the same people watch it people go because nothing ever happens and that's exactly (laughs) how i feel about this movie (laughs) Uh, it's it's it is it's sadly true but it won best picture so why don't we get into the oscar aspects of this film the fifth academy awards were held on november 18th 1932 at the ambassador hotel the ceremony was hosted by conrad nagel and the films qualified from august 1st 1931 to july 31st 1932 and what makes uh this uh best picture winner pretty unique in grand hotel is that it was not nominated in any other category it was only nominated for best picture and it only won for that and it's the only best picture winner to i don't want to say accomplish that feat but to have that trivia fact about it so what what do you think when you first hear that that it was not nominated for any other awards it makes me like rethink the outstanding production category just in general it makes me think more about best picture and what they consider a best picture you know are they considering it just this overall the feat that they got all these actors together and they made like a film that's, you know, to me, it's not very complete, but they interwebbed all these characters and that was like a feat in its own. And they loved the interaction and they loved the actors. So like, that's why it's deserving. Or is it MGM and you have Irving uh, Thalberg and this one because there's direct ties to the Academy, but why wouldn't you then nominate it for other categories? Uh, yeah, I think I, it's really interesting. And, you know, I, I think Joan Crawford should have been at least nominated. Cause I, I, again, like I thought she was great. But to kind of piggyback on Irving Thalberg, though, so the only other movies to not have won other awards but have been nominated were Broadway uh, Melody. It won Best Picture, but it was nominated for others but didn't win any. And then Mutiny on the Bounty, I think it had eight nominations and only one for Best Picture. And all three of those movies were MGM. Irving Thalberg Productions. So I don't know what that says politically in terms of the actual voting body of the uh, of the Academy Awards, but I think that's it can't just be like a coincidence that Irving Th- like all three of Irving Thalberg's best picture winners won nothing else those years. Yeah, I don't I really have no idea what that means or what that says, especially for a film that's like so drawn in an audience based on these actors and their performances like why don't we see an actor or an actress listed here at all like people love Greta Garbo and people love John Barrymore like why aren't either of them listed here I don't know I don't know but we'll, we'll get into that because there's one actor that was recognized but for something else it's it is very weird but why don't we just jump into the fifth Academy Awards so instead of the previous nine categories we see it bumped up to 12 and the reason why we're seeing yeah. 12 is there's a new edition here of three different categories, which is all around the short subject. We have the best short subject for a cartoon, 
the best live action short subject for comedy and the best live action short subject for novelty. And what do you think about them adding these categories? And do you think it uh, maybe should come back in some way? Or, you know, we do currently have these kind of shorts listed, but do you think it should be as broad as a comedy or cartoon that we see here? Uh, no, I, I like the combination. Um, and that was sort of the thing with the first Oscars where we talked about how comedy direction and drama direction should still just be like one uh, category. I, it's it's funny because every time that I watch the Oscars, uh, you know, every year, those short film categories and I try to like watch them and, and try to see the ones that I can see. I'm just like, why? You know, sometimes I'm like, why are these here? But they the fact that they were introduced so early on in the process, I think, speaks to um, what a lot of filmmakers were doing before talkies, because a lot of short, a lot of silent films were really short and they just told like these quick stories. And especially now with with cartoons like taking on more of a precedence in an entertainment of the time. So I think it actually is well deserving that we now have short categories, even though they're not like my personal choice of like film watching and consuming. I think it's like it's deserving. And and I and I also think that it was made though for Walt Disney's purposes. Cause I think like most of the best like cartoon shorts are especially early on was like won by Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of recognize this growing powerhouse probably that's just kind of influencing the industry so much. And I wonder if, you know, we always hear that like some shorts were kind of shown before full feature lengths to just kind of like warm you up before you watch the full picture, make like a bigger experience. And I wonder if it's that kind of reemergence in short subject that's kind of bringing it back and bringing it back into audience eyes and which ones they remember the most and which ones they liked or um, specifically why they brought it back. I'm yeah, to me, though, the separation of the cartoon and comedy and while I like the way it's separated now with animation and live action, I just think we should leave comedy and the way they call it here, novelty, uh, as simply one subject entirely. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It should just be one thing, but it's not our decision. They live uh, and they learn, you know, it's I love yeah. how it's just constantly evolving and they're constantly adding more categories. And I wish that just happened more nowadays. Yeah, there's not that much evolving uh, currently, but we're trying. Going back to Walt Disney, though, is he did win a special award for the ceremony, and that was for the creation of Mickey Mouse. Who he was Steamboat Willie, I think, was in 1928. So it took a few years for them, I guess, to recognize Mickey. Uh, but pretty cool that they realized early on they're like, "Huh, this Walt Disney guy, he's onto something with that fucking mouse." <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I wonder if it was even just adults or if it was specifically like kids to get kids more into film. And this really like drew them to this, these awesome animated shorts. And I love going back and looking at the, the old shorts of Mickey Mouse because it's yeah. like so drastically different of the Mickey Mouse that we kind of know today. Oh, so different. It's so different. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's such a uh, formative part of everyone's upbringing is uh, Disney movies in general, but specifically Mickey Mouse. So let's jump right into the categories, John Boy. Best live action short subject, novelty. Wrestling Swordfish by Mac Sennett. Best live action short subject, comedy. The Music Box from Hal Roach. Best short subject, cartoon. Flowers and Trees, Walt Disney. Walt Disney Productions and United Artists. Best sound recording. Went to Paramount Public's studio sound department. So still having that uh, 
only going to a studio sound department rather than as one film in particular for that category. Best Cinematography, Shanghai Express, Lee Garms. Best Art Direction, Transatlantic, went to Gordon Wiles. Best Adaptation, Bad Girl, by Edwin J. Burke, based on the novel and play by Vina Delmar. So this is where Grand Hotel would have been nominated for if it was nominated for Best uh, Adapted Screenplay. Do you think it should have been nominated? Cause especially because we have no other nominations uh, for the film in general. Yeah, this is always a hard hard um, kind of category to talk about without knowing the context of the book, right? The Best Adaptation right. should be how well this previous work was adapted into film. So knowing that this was like a novel or a book and then brought into some German plays and then brought over into the, the U.S. kind of Hollywood film market, to me, no, because I just don't think this movie works as a film entirely. I think it works in some scenes here and there, but overall with the characters coming together and the overall plot, I just don't think it's worthy. No. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think some of the dialogue is is cool and witty and fun, but. I, I don't know. I don't think it would have won. It could have been nominated, sure, but I don't think it it would have necessarily won and stood out among the others. So moving on. Best Original Story went to The Champ, which was written by Frances Marion. Best Actress, Helen Hayes in The Sin of Madeleine Claudette. So she's a pretty notable person because she is the second ever EGOT winner but she's also the first woman to do so she's also considered the first lady of american theater and and actually one of the towns near where i grew up um, is actually where helen hayes died and so there's a theater named after her and i just know like her importance to the theater world in general pretty large so it's pretty cool that she was recognized this early on by uh by the academy and uh kind of made her mark to get to that egot level which i think it's only like like 16 or 18 people i think is the number who have accomplished that feat mm-hmm. yeah very low yeah that's really really interesting it's also to note that the this film in particular uh, also produced by irving thalberg oh it was that's very interesting yeah I wonder um, why she won hmm. Hmm. i no, wonder why great. i haven't seen this <laughs> no, I, haven't I don't know yeah, but I, I I would actually tend to say she probably did deserve it. Um, I, I mean, I would being love an to EGOT see winner, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would love to see it uh, just because I know of the huge impact she had on uh, on American theater. Um, and this is a category where I wish Joan Crawford, yeah, I don't know if she would have been considered best actress. Maybe she would have been supporting actress, but I think she should have been nominated somehow. I thought she was really great, but not my decision. I agree. Best Actor went to Frederick Marsh for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Best Actor also went to Wallace Beery for The Champ. So two things. What? <laughs> yeah, Did you what? say and? <laughs> yeah, there was, a, there was a tie. So the first thing I wanted to mention is that Wallace Beery is, uh, he played Praising in Grand Hotel. So not only was he nominated for a different film, but he won for a different film than his performance. But I think the more important and cool thing is that there was a tie. And this is the only tie ever in the best actor category. How do you feel about that? And I read a little bit into this and supposedly it was based on the ruling. Whether um, when it came down to counting the votes and if you were within three votes and two of the nominees were within that that kind of margin, they were both just awarded and simply gave it a tie. How do you feel about that? Because supposedly there was one more vote for Wallace Berry. 
Do you think he should have just won? Or do you believe in this like tie system here? Uh, I oh well, if Beery had one more vote, he he probably should have won, and that's why I don't like how they do Best Picture now, where it's like the preferential balloting. It should just be populist like vote. Whatever wins majority vote, that's what wins the category. But there are rules in place for I don't know why that rule is would have been made. I don't like I don't understand like why it's like oh if in three votes there would be a tie. Like what's the difference between three votes versus that he has one more vote he should win. Unless they feel like there's some clerical error with it, which I guess is completely possible. I I don't really love it. Yeah, that just, it never made sense to me. Like if one vote is more than the other vote, then why would you not win? And I totally agree with you on Best Picture. You know, it should be the number of votes and simply that's it. Uh, But it is what it is. But uh, I, Frederick Marsh, I love him. I absolutely love him. He's in the movie Best Years of Our Lives, which will get to down the line but i think he's an awesome actor and wallace beery as like awful as pricing was i think that he's a pretty good actor because he made us hate that guy even more you know no definitely yeah i mean he's he's such a great like stubborn asshole that he is in this movie so i i mean he was a great performance i just hated his character yeah what 100 percent. but is what it is and pretty cool that there was a tie at one point for best actor there have been other ties before but this I feel like for this big of a category, this is pretty interesting. Best director goes to Frank Barzag for Bad Girl. Yeah, so uh, the interesting thing about this is that Frank Barzag, this is his second Best Director Award. Uh, He won for Seventh Heaven, which was from the first Academy Awards for Dramatic Picture. Uh, So he's the first director to win multiple Best Director Awards. And there have only been 18 other directors who have won at, at least two there have been three who have won three and there's only one with only four and that's john ford and what makes that really interesting is that this year uh john ford directed aerosmith which was nominated for best uh for outstanding production and so this is his first movie that he directed to be nominated for that category so now we have john ford entering the mix of all-time great directors and oscar movies uh, every year and finally outstanding production the nominees are The Smiling Lieutenant, Shanghai Express, One Hour With You, Five Star Final, The Champ, Bad Girl, Aerosmith, and the winner of the 1931-32 Academy Awards is Grand Hotel, going to Irving Thalberg, which was made by the production company Metro Golden Mayor, or MGM. So before we answer that worthy question, let's give some quick stats about Grand Hotel. The first one I want to point out is that IMDb score was a 7.4, which is the highest of all the other nominations from that year. They were actually in a good mix. There was one 7.3, which was the champ, or two 7.3s for the champ and Shanghai Express, but everything else was a 7.2 or lower. Some other numbers to throw out there it was an 88 percent on rotten tomatoes and the average rotten tomatoes rating is a 7.78 out of 10 the audience score of rotten tomatoes is a 77 and the average audience rating score is a 3.83 out of 5 7.4 on imdb i give this film an 84 out of 100 john what do you give grand hotel i gave this my second lowest score which is a 40 Oof. and i've i've really uh really shit on this film and 
if people are asking like, well, why is it your second lowest and not the lowest? Well, when I look back and was comparing it to the other films and just films in general, I looked at the Broadway melody, which I think is a worse film in terms of the way it was constructed. You know, there's a bunch of sound issues. The plot is is definitely more there than the Grand Hotel. It's just flimsy and kind of not very coherent and kind of just ends in a very just random way, the way the Grand Hotel did. But um, I just had to give the Grand Hotel just a little bit higher than uh, the Broadway melody simply because it was well made. We have better performances. We have just an overall better constructed film, but I still did not like it at all. <laughs> so my score uh, lines up with uh, the other scores that I read off. So I don't know if that was influenced by it, but for me in 84, and I do this by like almost like a grading scale. To me, that's like a almost like a B minus. It's like a high B minus, could be a B, but it's more like a B minus movie to me. So it's good with, its, with the star power. That's what drives it. It's all star power. The acting and the chemistry, I think, is like really solid and really good. But what bumps it down for me is that it's pretty shallow in terms of its storyline. It's nothing amazing with its technical aspects, but it's still like good enough, like way better than the Broadway melody, but certainly not as good as like All Quiet on the Western. Um, and there are films like down the line that I think that this just holds up better. And I, and I said earlier before that if this was remade today, I actually think it would be a, a knockout film. And I actually think people would love it if you can get like the right star power in it and rewritten for more of today's world. So it's a pretty, for me, it's a solid movie. And 84 is nothing great when we're talking, when, when I think of a Best Picture winner, I want something higher than that. So it definitely falls below my expected average for what, what I would assume. But it's it's good. I would recommend it, but I wouldn't say like this is the best, one of the best movies ever. Well, Ben, in that case, if you think that it's maybe not as high as some other Oscar films or what you think should be at the caliber of an Oscar level, is The Grand Hotel worthy of the Fifth Academy Award for Best Picture? I'm going to give a hesitant yes. Ooh. I think that... Interesting. I think that it's certainly... I think I think it's worthy. I again, we haven't seen any of those other movies, and the fact that those other movies from that year had slightly lower rating. Uh, only not, I only looked at the IMDb score for that movie, but the fact that that was a little bit lower uh, kind of takes it away from me. But I I really did I really did enjoy this. I don't think I was. This isn't a movie that I could really dug my teeth into, but for I think it's uh, it runs at 112 minutes, which is an hour 52. It's pretty enjoyable. Nothing that I would say that like, is the greatest thing ever, but it wasn't bad at all for me. I thought it was pretty, pretty good, and I just love the acting. So hesitant, yes, not my first pick. Like if if I was to rank everything at the end, it would not be in the top twenty films. Would it be in the top fifty out of the ninety-two best picture winners so far? There's it's possible. There's a case for it. That's how I feel. Yeah, I just can't say yes. I got to say no. I just don't think there's a coherent enough film in here. Um, while the filmic aspects of it, the cinematography, the acting, the sound, the art, um, it just, it's there, but it's just not interesting to me. It's very boring. It's, uh, to me, the most boring film that we've watched yet. You know, we don't have any of the, uh, like, audacity and the huge epicness of Cimarron, the, like, 
impactful power of All Quiet on the Western Front and how beautiful that theme is intermixed with this amazing cinematography and acting from all these young men. Broadway melodies like this introduction to sound and while the plot is shaky and the acting is not as great, it's still is more interesting to me as a film and as a plot and as a storyline. Uh, and then, of course, Wings, we found very uh, interesting and entertaining just as a film, uh, as a war film. I just can't say yes to the Grand Hotel. I just don't think there's enough to offer here besides big stars in a cool location. Going to the movies and enjoying it however you want, whatever you may like, it is completely fine to not love everything. And I think, again, we hit it many times, but this film is not for the people who are crazy filmgoers like me and John. This is a film for everyone to enjoy. And that's the, I think, the significance of it because there are, are not really many other Best Picture winners moving on that's going to just be solely focused on, well, look at all these stars on the screen at once. Yeah, I think this is a mark in this new kind of Hollywood where these big casts come together and that's the the big spectacle. But on the other hand, I just don't think that's what makes a film good. You know, you can have all the star power you want and all the cool costumes that you want, but if I don't care about their characters, if I'm not really interested in where the story is going, where the story went, then what's the point of me watching the film if I'm not getting anything more and just, wow, this this was a cool error and these are great actors. I just want something more. I think that concludes this episode of Worthy. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is Worthy. Grand Hotel. Always the same. People come, people go. <laughs> Nothing ever happens. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.